Hello and welcome to Life with Ed, the podcast. I'm Julia Worth, your host, a registered dietitian in New Haven, Connecticut. And I want to say happy 2020 because even though it is January 13th already, um, this is my first episode of 2020. So um, welcome to the new year, guys. I'm very excited for this year. I think um, we're going to have a lot of good things here, especially on the podcast. Um, So get excited. Anyway, so before we get to the news item for today, I just want to talk about a few things that I've been getting a lot of questions about. I'm definitely going to be addressing them in the Q&A episode, which is coming two episodes from now. So buckle your seatbelts, it is coming. (laughs) Um, But I want to address insurance. So I take insurance in my private practice. Um, Right now, I only take one type of insurance. That's Anthem. Um, It's the most common in Connecticut, which is why I chose it. I am going to be taking Cigna soon. A lot of dietitians that I know, especially in private practice um, on their own, do not accept insurance. And that's something I hear from clients all the time, um, that it's just really hard, especially in eating disorders, in intuitive eating, in haze, in these sort of um, more specialized fields to find a dietitian that is competent in the field and also takes insurance. For those dietitians who don't, I totally understand their decision. Insurance can be a pain to work with. Um, You don't get paid as much, but um, there are a lot of clients who can't afford to see a dietitian um, who doesn't accept insurance. So if you are a dietitian out there and you specialize in the field of eating disorders, just know there are a lot of people who would really benefit um, from seeing you, of course, and they would really benefit if you took um, their insurance. So just my, you know, humble plea to have more dietitians out there accepting insurance in the eating disorder space and making sure that everyone has, you know, fair access to quality treatment. Um, So yeah, there's there's my plug and, and encouragement for insurance. Anyway, I want to say this past week on Thursday, January 9th, I hosted a WIND, uh, which is Weight Inclusive Nutrition and Dietetics meetup in New Haven, and it was a blast. I'm going to be hosting several more events this year. Um, the best place to find out about them is on my social media. That's at Worth Your While um, on Instagram. Or obviously on the podcast, I will be talking about the rest of them here. This one was sort of impromptu. I wasn't quite sure how it would go, but now I'm super excited for many more events to come. So whether you are a provider or um, someone who has an eating disorder or family member um, of someone with an eating disorder, I am going to be hosting events for you. So get excited, especially um, when we get to February and National Eating Disorders Awareness Week. My article of the week is from the springtime. Um, I wanted to bring it back up because I have heard a lot of things recently about orthorexia and it's something to address at the beginning of the year as people are jumping on those resolutions and trying to make supposedly healthier eating decisions. Um, The fear is that you become, you know, so obsessed with these decisions that um, it leads to actually, you know, harming your health instead of helping it. So this is from, uh, it was published in Science Daily, um, and the article is called When Does Clean Eating Become an Unhealthy Obsession? I'll obviously post the article in the show notes, but I'm just going to read the summary for you. 
It says researchers say those who have a history of an eating disorder, obsessive compulsive traits, dieting, poor body image, and a drive for thinness are more likely to develop a pathological obsession with healthy eating or consuming only healthy foods, known as orthorexia nervosa. Although eating healthy is an important part of a healthy lifestyle, for some people, this preoccupation with healthy eating can become physically and socially impairing. So I wanted to bring this up just because if you hear someone talking about clean eating like all the time and they restrict certain foods and they always say something in the name of health, that honestly might be a health problem, not a benefit. So just want to bring it up so we don't praise those behaviors. And if it does seem, you know, a little bit too frequent to be normal, maybe ask them if everything's okay, talk to them about it, suggesting a dietitian, um, really addressing orthorexia early is the best way to prevent it becoming anorexia. So um, without any more <laughs> talking and chatter from me, I want to introduce our guest. We're going to have Sarah Canny on the podcast today. She is a runner um, and she is the founder and host of Rise Run Retreat, which is a retreat for women runners. Um, she hosts twice a year. Uh, she's also a blogger and just really, uh, really fascinating person. I loved having her on the show. I love following her on Instagram. Um, so check her out at Sarah.canny on Instagram or at Rise Run Retreat on Instagram. Her next retreat, if you're interested and you are a woman runner, um, is May 14th through 17th in Woodstock, Vermont. I think you'll learn a lot from Sarah. We had a great conversation. Um, it's definitely one of those more typical episodes from the beginning of my show, really going back and talking about what it looks like to have an eating disorder and to recover from it. So um, without further ado, here is Sarah. Hello, this is Sarah. Hi, Sarah. This is Julia. Julia, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Thanks so much for making time for this. Oh, of course. So, yeah, I just wanted to start with when did you first hear about eating disorders and when did you realize that you had one? Because I think sometimes one can sort of trigger the other realization. It was really, you know, being in class and kind of going through the text and realizing that the definition that was there in the textbook um, was actually me and yeah. that I fit like those symptoms and, um, and characteristics to a T. And so where did you sort of go from there? What did you know for a while or did you seek help then? How did that go? Yeah. So, I mean, I had been struggling for quite a while. Um, but that realization was really the catalyst for me to, to actually approach my, my mom, my my parents, I have a pretty good relationship with them and um you know, I was just so physically miserable and mm -hmm. just wasn't really sure how to how to get out. Yeah. Um and so um yeah, so I just kind of, you know, confessed to my mom that I thought I had a problem and just wasn't sure what to do and then from there um, my parents helped me to seek help at Syracuse. So that was just through the, the university's health um, care offerings there. I was able to see a therapist and uh, a nutritionist as well and so started, started to get help at that point. And did being a nutrition major, um, did that really come from a place of wanting to learn more or you were just so interested in food because of the disorder? 
my um, my grandfather's on my mom's side, my dad's side. They both had heart attacks um, oh, okay. when I was like ten or twelve, and so um, health became a really sort of central focus in our family. And honestly, back then this was the nineties, and so the recommendation is you know cut out all cholesterol, go no fat, low yeah, fat, the egg um, scare. And so I can remember, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so I can remember as a kid, like because of this hereditary thing, my parents kind of really changed our diet, um, you know, and kind of became, you know, kind of the quintessential 90s health, health conscious um, sort of um, diet. And, uh, and so I think part of my interest in becoming a nutritional science major was, okay, this is in my family, what can I do to be healthy so that I don't you know, suffers from mm-hmm. um, yeah, a same. heart attack later in life as well. Yeah. So there was that, but then also just a pretty deep insecurity um, in my own sort of um, being, I guess, my, my physical appearance and, and then just kind of an insecurity in who I was that that sort of fed into um, the, the obsession part. And so it was probably equal parts of, you know, genuinely wanting to learn what health meant and what mm-hmm. that looks like, and then also just sort of this this obsession, and then you know, kind of having it as a tool to to lose weight and to sort of um, become this ideal body yeah. image that I had in my mind. Did you stay as a nutrition major? Um, no, I did not. So, okay, I was going to say, um, I thought, I thought you the, became a teacher, yeah, right? <laughs> I did, yeah. So at the end of um, my freshman year, um, I was kind of in and out of uh, an outpatient treatment facility and wasn't really getting better. And so uh-huh. my dad kind of gave me an ultimatum where he said, you either need to take a year off from school or transfer to um, the University of New Hampshire, which was about 20 minutes from my parents' house. Mm, Um, And so it was at that point where I realized, like, if I really want to get better, I need to not be a nutritional science major. Yeah, because it's around you all the time. Yeah. So I changed my major a bunch of times, but finally landed (laughs) on um, English. Okay. Yeah, and then I was a high school English teacher for a while. Okay. Okay, that makes more sense. Um, so what did the recovery process look like for you? It sounds like it, it took a while for you to get there. Yeah, it did. So after that freshman year, um, I was on the wait list for an outpatient treatment facility, finally entered that program. Um, and that was pretty, you know, I'm not really sure what the recovery um sort of protocol is like now in terms Mm -hmm. of the clinics that are out there, but it was very much, um, I think they used a lot of scare tactics to try and get people to change. And so, um, everything was like a very, um, sort of emergency, you know, there was just a, they, they sent me to the emergency room a couple of times, um, and um, they thought my heart rate was too low. Right. Um, and then... Um, they put you on chair Yeah, rest. there was just a lot of... Yeah, there was just a lot of ultimatums of, like, you can't go on your family vacation unless you weigh this much. Um, and so there was just a lot of, you know, as a sort of people-pleasing perfectionist, I wanted to get recovery right. So um, for the most part, I 
sort of straightened out and I did everything I was supposed to do, um, sort of met their weight deadlines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of what happened is that, you know, I gained the weight and I appeared to be, you know, healthy or recovered. Um, and so the, you know, weight restored insurance doesn't cover treatment anymore. And so stopped with that, stopped, you know, stopped seeing a therapist, stopped being a nutritionist. Um, and that's really when, um, I sort of shifted from the anorexia, anorexia to bulimia and really struggled with bulimia because on mm-hmm. the outside it wanted to look like I was recovered um, right. and didn't want people to ask questions and nosy, but behind closed doors I was sort of purging. And, yeah. Um, I think, and then I ended up struggling with that for, for nine years. So, wow. um, I yeah, think that's it was, a common, it was a really long road. A common like shift that happens, and and you're right, like kind of mm-hmm. goes under the radar because people think, oh, she looks better, mm-hmm. at least yeah. like from you know the outside, and no one yeah. is asking because they they thought you had the one disorder instead of the fact that they're really yeah. the same and just merge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's true, and and that's what that's what my experience was. Um, so, you know, it took a while and then, you know, as I kind of, you know, through my young adulthood after, you know, this is post-college and kind of after getting married and, um, you know, into my early to mid-20s, I was kind of in and out of therapy because it had lasted for so long and I was so frustrated that it was still an issue in my life that I kind of realized that I needed to get myself back into some sort of therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when I started sort of seeing a therapist more regularly. Um, and when you know, did and you, finally found, when did you kind of feel like you actually were recovered or reached some sort of recovery? Yeah. So that really didn't happen until, um, I was like 27, 28. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, kind of the catalyst for that was, um, I um, found out that I was pregnant, um, mm-hmm. and so, um, you know, my husband and I were expecting this baby, and I really realized kind of in that, kind of when we first got the news and in those first few, those early weeks of kind of knowing that I was pregnant, that I just didn't want to keep doing this and then be a mom with a small baby who was still binging and purging and it's really destructive cycle and so I think in some ways pregnancy kind of gave me permission to take care of myself and to actually love and honor myself um you know because in some ways it it wasn't about me anymore because there was a life inside me and this baby inside me but I also realized that it was all about me and all about how I needed to learn to take care of myself. Yeah. In order for, for this baby to develop health in a right way. Like you can't nourish the Um, baby separately. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad that even though it sounds like a horrible, really long process, glad that you could share that because I have people who write into me all the time that are like, it sounds like everyone else recovers in like two years and I'm still, you know, struggling. And that's, that's not yep. true, but you don't hear that story all yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I mean, all total, it, you know, it was 10 years or so that that I was really, you know, struggling with disordered, probably, you know, 
distorted body image disorder eating and then the diagnosed eating disorder um, and, you know, in recovery, it was a really long journey for sure. Yeah. So I know now you're a runner, right? Mm-hmm. And so how, when did that start and how did that play in with your eating disorder at all? Yeah. So, um, I was played, um, sports all through high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, in college, I really wasn't playing any sports. I mean, I would go play pickup basketball from time to time mm-hmm. um, and was starting to utilize the gym on campus. I'd never really been to a gym before oh, in, okay. in high school. And so starting to utilize the gym. And I think that's where I just got really focused on calories in and calories out. So right. I was counting calories in and and then going to the gym and, and counting the calories that I was burning on the elliptical or whatever machine that I was on. Um, and I really wasn't running that much. Um, it really was kind of towards the end of, um, my freshman year of college where, um, I thought, well, if I want to be healthy and not have an eating disorder, I, I want to, you know, it seems like runners are healthy people. So (laughs) maybe, (laughs) maybe if I, yeah, (laughs) maybe if I get to the point where I'm healthy enough to run a marathon, right. I thought like a marathon is like, you know, if you can do that, then you've got to be healthy, you know, Um, you know, if I can get to that point of, you know, being able to run a marathon, then, you know, maybe that will help me recover very distorted yeah. <laughs> kind of logic going on there but you know, I'm um, like oh so she can run 26 <laughs> miles which is weird to begin with I know yeah so um but I think you know and for a long time kind of through you know so I started running mm-hmm. um and sort of swapped out whatever I was doing at the gym for running um, and which was way more enjoyable to me anyway. I oh, yeah. really enjoyed being outside and, um, I had grown up hiking with my dad and just kind of being a really outdoorsy kid. And so getting back outside versus being at the gym was appealed to me a lot more. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it did become entwined with the eating disorder because, you know, it was calories in, calories out and, um, but I always wanted it to, to not be. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so it was kind of that thing that I did for myself. And so when I was in that outpatient treatment facility and they, you know, were like, you can't run anymore. This is a prohibited activity. You know, I was really kind of um, wanted to do everything I could to get back to being able to run. So that was a big motivator for me to gain the weight back that they wanted me to gain was so that I had that freedom to do that again. Yeah. That's kind of nice that it wasn't ever connected for you in the way of like, I need to lose weight in order to run. Yeah. And I think, you know, I feel kind of lucky in that regard because I know that, um, that a lot of, a lot of women who do struggle with eating disorders, you know, especially kind of, you know, if they've run through high school and college, that those can be very closely intertwined. Um, but because I didn't run and I was never on the cross country team, didn't run in high school, didn't run in college. It was always team sports that I, that I did. And, you know, and then the whole gym thing, um, it was, it wasn't, 
quite as wrapped up in the running as it as it is for some other people. Right. So now being part of the running community much more, how do you see that runners kind of view body image and food and weight, um, maybe when you started and then how it's changed? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I feel like I have kind of a, a unique perspective on that. I host a, a women's running retreat, mm-hmm. called Rise Run Retreat. And so, you know, I kind of get an insider view of, of a, a at least a snapshot of the running community. And I think one of the things that I observe is that so many women have um, just a lot of food rules that they've adopted from diet culture. Yeah. Um, And so I think that's probably just the most prevalent um, sort of negative mindset that exists in the running community is that, um, you know, there's sort of just a lot of pop culture information about nutrition and um, that trickles down and it's not necessarily accurate or helpful. Um, and so I think that's probably one of the biggest things that, I, that I've observed. Yeah. So at Run Rise Retreat, do you talk about how food and body image relate to Yeah. 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 So I feel like I have a unique opportunity with Rise Run Retreat to create a platform for um not just inspiring people, but also providing accurate information. So mm-hmm. at each of the retreats, I bring in a registered dietitian or a holistic nutritionist to really address some of these issues. I mean, they're they're talking about fueling your body for your right. daily runs and also like what to eat when you're running a marathon and like how to time things and find what works for you. But they're also kind of trying, you know, in their educational process, really trying to shift that mindset around food and how we how we treat our bodies, how we honor our bodies and, and view our bodies when it comes to, to the way that we uh, fuel ourselves and um, nourish nourish ourselves. So I feel like that's a really important aspect yeah, for sure. of the retreat um, to, to provide that accurate information for people. And have you ever like seen a woman at your retreat sort of have like an aha moment and realize like, oh my gosh, like I never thought of my body or food or running in that way? Yeah, I think we, um, just at our most recent um, camp that was in September, we had, um, after um, sort of our, our day of workshops, we had a big sort of roundtable discussion and a Q&A panel with all of the um with all of the, the speakers who had been there. Um, mm-hmm. And then we did small group discussions. And it was actually in those small group discussions that um, that kind of response came up where it was like, oh my gosh, I've never thought of that. I didn't realize I had these rules around food. Yeah. Just people feeling like things have been a little bit illuminated to them. I think sometimes when it's so ingrained, I mean, how many of us have been reading Shape Magazine and yeah. all those, you know, 17 and all these yeah. things that we've been reading since we were young adults that are just chock full of, of diet culture and food rules, basically. Right. Um, you know, and sometimes we don't even think about what we've absorbed and adopted into our daily habits and practice. Um, yeah, that's so. such a good way to put it because I have people all the time who are like, oh, this is what I do. And like, they don't even realize and that's mm-hmm. kind of disordered to always have to have, you know, whatever it is, whether it's like mm-hmm. unsweetened creamer in your coffee, like unacceptable mm-hmm. if it's anything different or, yeah. or something. It's like, where did yeah. that come from? 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And do you notice, I know mostly you you work with women, especially at your retreats, they're all for women, right? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. But within the male running community, do you see any of these problems at all? Or do you talk with any male runners about this? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's there. I think it's maybe a, a little bit more subtle and probably not as, you know, talked about. Um, but occasionally, you know, I'm in a run a local running club and, um, you know, I've been a part of a bunch of different relay teams. And, you know, kind of when you're in those kind of intimate running settings, either out mm-hmm. on a group run or on a relay team or at a race, um, sometimes you'll, you'll see it, yeah, post-race, you know, people... Um, you know, either abstaining from something, like you go out to eat after a race and like people are abstaining from certain things on the menu or, you know, talking about like, oh, I'm going to have this because I've, you know, I'm going to have a beer and some cake because, you know, I'm, yeah, I've earned that with my running. Ooh, so yeah. there is like a, yeah. <laughs> there is definitely a subtle sort of undertone of some of those rules and like earning food um, can be a very big um, yeah, idea, I guess you could say, or concept that is very prevalent in the running community. Um, so, so definitely, I think it, 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 it permeates a little. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, that's interesting. You said that cause I was just, um, photographing a race actually. And the race announcer was driving me up the wall cause he kept saying like, Oh, we had to extend the course. So that means like more ice cream after the race or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, for starters, it's winter. It's freezing. Like no one's interested in your ice cream. And sec- <laughs> it was, it was like pouring rain and cold. And like, secondly, you know, why is that what we're focusing on? Like, shouldn't we talk mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. you know, they're doing a great job. Like, sorry, you're running an extra hill. I don't know. It was just such, mm-hmm. it was driving me nuts. I actually went up and told him to stop talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that that's a, a, a prevalent mindset is this idea of earning, earning food. Yeah. Um, like you get to run for cake and, or something. Yeah. 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 And have you seen the um, sort of potentially label labeling of food where it will have like how much running is on it? How how much to run to eat that at all? I have seen those Pinterest graphics, yeah, where it's like, a, you know, it shows the number of donuts equate to, you like know. How many miles how, or something. Yeah, how many miles. Yeah, I've definitely seen those around floating around the internet and social media and how um, do you hear most of the running community like reacting to those you know i i i don't think that a lot of people are probably as aware or conscious of i guess sort of the the undertones of that kind of messaging Mm -hmm. um i i think that you know it's um it's something that you know, maybe a lot of people just aren't as sensitive to um, or aware of. Um, I think it's becoming more so just uh, sort of as people kind of call out and illuminate diet culture and the messaging that's coming through that. But, um, yeah, I just, I think that some people just aren't kind of aware of how that could be potentially damaging or, or harmful. Right. Yeah. I live in a bubble where it's like most people know. So <laughs> why, yeah. why isn't everyone on board with that? Um, 
So what changes are you starting to see, if any, in, in the running community when it comes to, you know, food and body image of runners? Yeah, I think there's definitely been a shift um, just in acceptance of, of people at every size. And I think we're seeing that in media and in some of the um, apparel and shoe manufacturers are, mm-hmm. you know, presenting different models, um, you know, and a, a wide and inclusive range of, of people in that regard. And so I think that um, that is kind of trickling down to, you know, the running community and at races and things like that. So, you know, hopefully that that's changing and having an impact where, um, you know, people feel um, included and accepted um, in that way. Yeah, I guess I, I'm wondering, too, because people often think, you know, all elite runners like look the same. Like I hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, when mm-hmm. you watch the top runners fish- finishing, they all have, you know, the exact same body type. Um, mm-hmm. Does anyone ever ask you questions about that or bring up that sort of viewpoint to you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's that's true. And, you know, if you look at the 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 training schedule of an elite athlete, Mm -hmm. you know, they're running a hundred plus miles a week, (laughs) you know, and they're, the thing that's different about these elite athletes is they're also fueling their body to do that, to be able to do that. And so there's, their body is going to be sort of formed by the training that they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think, I, I honestly, I think of Stephanie Bruce as, as an example. She was actually a guest speaker at Rise Run Retreat. Oh, and nice. um, she was in the middle of, or she was just coming off her um, marathon in London. This was in 2018. And okay. so um, she was kind of ramping up. But she sent me a, like a, a list of like, could you have these foods on hand? And so I made sure that she had all these foods. And she like, but far and away ate more than anybody else in the <laughs> retreat because yeah. she's, she's working really hard. She's, you know, running as her job. And, and so I think that it's important it. to, yeah. to also, yeah, to recognize that, you know, these elite runners who are the best of the best in the country, um, they're working really hard and they're fueling their body and probably eating more than any of us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think that it, it's great to have, um, you know, to, to maybe look across like a broad spectrum of sports and activities mm-hmm. to see different shapes and sizes at elite levels. Um, because just by the nature of running, yeah, it's the best of the best in running are going to to be that that size. But if we're talking at the elite level, maybe take out like a broad spectrum of right. like elite athletes in every sport um but I think you know in terms of like the recreational and everyday runner um there's definitely I feel like more um acceptance and recognition of you know runners of every size and that you can be a runner no matter what your body shape is right I'm glad you brought up the you know different elite athletes look different based on the sport because mm-hmm. for me when I I ran cross country and track and I am you know taller and and larger than any other runner on my team because that's just how my body is 
And I just remember thinking like, I don't fit in quite with these people. And I didn't mm-hmm. quite fit in with the shot putters because I also threw shot put. I was like a little bit too small for them. Um, and then I went to, I did heptathlon and I was like, these are my people. Like I finally found them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was such yeah. like a cool experience to be like, oh, this is where yeah. I can be at, at peak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you can also look at the trail running community as well. And like the type of body that's going to go longer and further mm-hmm. versus like faster, you know, faster and faster. Yeah. Um, or even, you know, a sprinter's a sprinter and a marathoner like oh, it's so just different. different you know it's so different and so um you know i think it's important to to yeah to rec- to if you look at a cross cut of elite athletes whether it's rugby or field hockey or football or whatever sport mm-hmm. like their your body is going to form to the job that you're doing so um i think it's it's important to recognize that yeah for sure so in the media, obviously, in the past couple months, there's been a lot about coaching for runners, especially female mm-hmm. coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think, you know, needs to change or you hope to see change in terms of coaching? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be really great to see um, more female coaches on the professional and elite level. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I think that we're going to start to see that in in the next few years um it'd be amazing to to see um you know some some training groups pop up that are female-led and I know that um there's a training Under Armour's um run um training group um out in Flagstaff they are under a female coach um you know Shalane Flanagan's come on with the arm and track club yeah so it's it's neat to see that kind of take shape and I think the more women who step into those roles um and sort of set the example the more we'll see that become the norm and so maybe not just in terms of female coaches but like how the coaches uh work with athletes is that part of what you're seeing change yeah I think so I mean you know I I think more and more um we're gaining insight into sort of this female body and how yeah. our monthly cycle affects performance. Um, and as that sort of becomes illuminated, I think that a female coach has a unique understanding of that and can kind of apply the science um, to the training load in a way that's going to be bring out the best performance in their athletes. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll see more of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I was reading something saying like you, you can't train a female athlete the same way you train a male athlete. They just mm-hmm. don't react to the um, workouts the same. Yeah. Um, is that sort of what you're talking about? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, our hormones make a huge difference in how we respond to um, different workouts at different points in our monthly cycle. Um, I know the book um, Roar by Dr. Stacey Sims is just an excellent resource for kind of understanding your period and your hormone cycles in a way that um, helps you kind of map out your training and knowing when you're 
you know, kind of optimally, um, you know, optimized for peak performance in terms of your hormones and um, those types of things. And then, you know, just how to, you know, maybe cut yourself some slack um, if a workout doesn't go as you had planned and you don't nail it because yeah. it might, you know, be because it might be due to the, the time of month and the hormones that you're, that are cycling through your body at that point. So, yeah. um, I think her, her book is an excellent resource, but, um, yeah, that, that insight is really helpful, um, uh, for, for athletes uh, in any sport. Yeah. I'm 99% sure that was me today. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> uh, so my last question or second to last question is uh, kind of going back to thinking where you were, you know, in college, after college, struggling with your eating disorder to where you have come now. Um, and mm-hmm. what advice would you give that former self? Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think back to, you know, I was in college from 2000 to 2004 and um I feel like you know maybe there were resources out there but I feel like there weren't (laughs) Um, you know and they weren't as readily available on the internet there wasn't you know you could get some books you could go to the bookstore and and try to find the eating disorder section or you know you could go to the (laughs) library but there really like information just wasn't readily available and so I didn't have any Yep, couldn't Google. <laughs> you know, I just I didn't have any stories to sort of lean on and give me hope that you know recovery was possible. I mm-hmm. it kind of felt like this never ending battle that you know I didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And so, I think the advice that I would offer myself back then would, um, you know, just to to focus in on um, figuring out what it means to really value and love yourself um, and finding um, finding some truth within that um, allows you to really uh, embrace and um, be fully yourself. Uh, that sounds so complicated and convoluted, <laughs> but but basically, it's just like I I just wish that my younger self loved herself yeah. and saw the value in herself um, instead of being so focused on perceived, um, you know, the perceptions of other people and and yeah, per, a perceived ideal. I think that's um, something all of us, even if you don't have an eating disorder could stand yeah, to, to think about like sure. maybe it doesn't matter so much what everyone else is thinking mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, awesome well so my last question I ask every guest is uh just to sort of lighten the mood and um remind us that food is a positive thing uh mm-hmm. so I like to know what your favorite food is Ooh, my favorite food um I think I mean, there are a lot of different ones, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, something I really love is warm apple crisp, like oh. a homemade warm apple mm-hmm. crisp with some vanilla bean ice cream on oh, that's top. Really good. It's kind of like the warm apple crisp melts the vanilla bean ice cream, and so it's like this apple crisp soup. <laughs> oh, that's delicious. <laughs> so good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It was really fun to have you on the show. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. If you made it this far, please, please rate and review my show. Share it with a friend. Um, anything uh, to get more of the eating disorder awareness message out there. Um, so thank you, and I'll see you in two weeks. Have a wonderful time.